You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Thank you, team, and thank you, everyone, um, for being here. We'll begin as we normally do with a a brief scripture reading. It's going to be on the screen here in front of you. You follow along and I'll read it for you. A few verses here from Hebrews chapter 2. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Since the children have flesh and blood, that's us, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. That's the reading of God's word. And again, welcome everybody. I'm so glad that you all are here today, whether you're joining us online or uh, in the room for the first time. Uh, I know, listen, I I wouldn't be here. I know our staff wouldn't be here. This church wouldn't be here without all of your prayers and your support. And I've lost count of the text messages and phone calls and emails I've I've gotten this week from both this church and from uh, the spiritual family we have in our every nation world and certainly around the body of Christ here in Austin, the pastors and churches I'm connected too. And uh, if you're just walking in or joining us for the first time, like I said, at the beginning of our time, uh, you know, today doesn't look like we thought it would a week ago. Uh, We had lots of plans for today and things to talk about and some really great updates to give you, but we're just going to push all of that to next week and put that all on pause for today, as I'm sure you can can understand. And for those of you, again, who have not heard, this past Tuesday morning, our beloved pastor of children's ministry, Kevon Liber, died suddenly and tragically right in the middle of one of our our pastor's meetings. Uh, There's no signs, no warning just here and then gone. And, and when someone that you know and that you love uh, is literally here one minute and, and gone the next, of course, it's a lot of things. And it is, it's incredibly disorienting. Um, it's saddening. It's shocking. Uh, it's traumatizing. The list goes on. I could go on, but so I've discovered this week, and maybe I hope we all can a little bit today, death can also be alongside those things, with those things. And death can be other things. Death can also be this word. It can also be enlightening. Enlightening, that's what the word Paul uses. We need the eyes of our hearts enlightened to see something. And here's what I mean. I mean that death, death may be like nothing else, focuses the mind on what's really important. And it opens up the heart in ways that nothing else really can. Which is why I think the book of Ecclesiastes puts it like this. It says that the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. That is to say, the Bible says, it's smart to think about death. And so today, I'd like to do just that. I'd like to have a conversation today about death, or maybe start one in a way. You know, pastors, churches, preachers, folks in my position, sometimes, you know, we can be accused of talking about stuff that isn't relevant, not relevant to your life, like stuff no one's really talking about. Of course, we here at Mosaic try not to let that be true of us, but whether or not you think that's true of us or it's 
been true in the past or somewhere else for you, at least today, what I hope you'll see is that at least for once, we're talking about something that we all have in common. It's relevant to every life, and that is death. Now, I know it's hard to hear that word, and I'll talk about why that is in just a minute and what I think that shows about us. But before I get into that, let me just say this. What you will hear today, what you're about to hear today, you cannot find in any other faith system. You're not going to find it in another religion. You can't pull it out of another holy book. And what you're going to hear today is maybe why, more than any other reason, why I am a Christian and why Pastor Kevon Liburd was a Christian and why he spent his life telling others about the hope that he had found in the person of Jesus. So today, with all that and the, sort of the, the background here, I want to try to give us try to give us some tools to help us understand the meaning of death within God's vision for life. A meaning for death within God's vision for life. And to try to help us do that, I want to ask and answer three questions. Here we go. Number one, I want to ask and answer, why do we struggle with death so much? Number two, how then can we do better? Because we do struggle with it. And finally, who can have hope? Why do we struggle? How can we do better? And who can have hope? Let's begin here, number one. And again, ask the question, why do we struggle? Like many of us have so much this week with death. Let me try to, <laughs> excuse me, try to give you four quick reasons why I think our modern culture struggles with death. I want to kind of try to problematize for a moment. First of all, it's because of what I'll call modern hiddenness. I'll phrase all four of these similarly, as you'll see. Modern hiddenness. What I mean is there's a hiddenness in our culture when it comes to death. I mean, even with all of the death we've experienced in the last year and a half in our nation, come on, death is still fairly hidden. Like it's not something that happens right in front of us or next to us. It's something that happens more like in hospitals or care facilities or on the other side of the world somewhere. Modern medicine and science have taken this conversation about death and taken it out of the playing field in life and kind of put it over on the sidelines. And think about this, think about these, uh, these few facts. In the 17th century, the 17th century uh, British minister, theologian, his name is John Owen. You may uh, know his name or read about him. Uh, he outlived all 11 of his children and his wife. And because people in that era tended to die in the same place where they lived, he likely saw all 12 of them pass right before his eyes in the home where he lived. In colonial times, American families lost one out of every three children before they reached adulthood. Life expectancy in that era was around 40 years of age. Again, this isn't too long ago. 40 years of age, meaning most children lost at least one parent before they reached adulthood, the philosopher Thomas Hobbes called this era nasty, brutish, and short. By contrast, I've got four kids. Thankfully, all my kids have all four of their grandparents still alive, still involved in their life. That's a gift, and we are so grateful for this. We wouldn't have it any other way. It's way better this way, but my point is, this is a newish development in the history of the world. And you can see this especially just by thinking about how the, the two topics of sex and death are discussed in our culture. They flip places like a hundred years ago. We never talked about this one. We avoided it. A man, death, we talked about it all the time. Now it's switched. We talk about this former one as often as we can and avoid the latter 
at all costs. See, death, death in our modern culture, is my point, has become hidden not only from sight, but also from our conversation and therefore from our consideration. And according to the book of Ecclesiastes, to do that, it's not smart. It's not wise. It only leaves us unprepared. Death, for the most part, has become hidden. Number two, we don't just experience this modern hiddenness, but something I'll call modern happiness. And if you travel, travel outside the U.S., especially in any kind of non-Western part of the world, you'll see that the majority of cultures in the world, in some way at least, try to prepare their people for death. Uh, Hindus, for example, have believed in reincarnation. You're taught, you believe that the deeds you do in this life affect how you're going to live the next life. Buddhists believe uh, the suffering, uh, death you experience is just an illusion. So let go, detach from this life. Muslims believe a paradise is available for those uh, in the next life based on the deeds you do here and now. Again, these, these are all different, but the point is that they all have something outside this life, beyond this life, as untouchable by death. In most cultures, the point is there's something worth living for besides this life. But what does our modern secular world and culture give us? Today we're told that basically there is nothing beyond this life, which means this life is all there is, which means therefore when it comes to happiness, Elvis Presley put it, it's now or never. It's now or never. Because we believe death is the end of happiness. It could never be a doorway to more. No wonder we avoid the topic. A guy by the name of Mark Ashton. Mark Ashton was a pastor in England. He's sort of famous there. He wrote a bunch of books. Usually people only like me ever read. But he, he was, it's theology stuff, but he was diagnosed with inoperable cancer at the age of 62. And because of what he believed, and what you'll hear in just a minute about Christian hope, he was so confident, uh, he was so anticipatory about his, his future that it, it unnerved, it kind of rattled the people around him. Uh, one time he tells a story uh, when this was happening, he went to go get a haircut one day. And he went to the barber shop. And when he walked in, the lady who, who normally cut his hair asked him, how are you doing? And he said, well, I've only been given a few months to live and sat down for the haircut. And he said when he did that, like the whole place went silent. Like everybody just stopped and stared at him. And he said he couldn't get a single word out of the lady who had cut his hair for the rest of his time there. Why is this? Well, of course, again, we believe, we believe that there's only happiness that can be found in this life and therefore death. And any discussion around it causes us like this paralyzing anxiety. Death ends happiness in our modern view. It can never lead to more. So we struggle. Third reason we struggle with that, something I'll call modern hopelessness. Hopelessness. A few years ago, this uh, secular writer named Jessica Brown, you may have heard of her, she wrote an article in The Guardian. It was called this, quote, We fear death, but what if it isn't as bad as we think? And she wrote this article from a completely secular framework, atheistic perspective, as in, once you're gone, you're gone. So you'll feel nothing, you'll know nothing, so what's the big deal? Because there's no God, death doesn't matter, so quit thinking about it, and if you quit thinking about it, you'll be fine. <laughs> but the problem is, as even a lot of secular you know, people have pointed out, when you get rid of God, you actually get rid of hope. Hope goes out the room too. Let's just be honest and acknowledge real hope goes if God goes. And therefore, any kind of hope you could ever have 
again, like happiness, has to be found in this life or bust. Because you know, I know, people will, you've got to have a reason to, to go on, to keep on, keep it on, to keep living. But instead of a living hope in a living God, we either now have dead hopes or we're left with what's far more likely for us, decaying hopes. Like hopes that rot, hopes that disintegrate, hopes that fall apart, hopes that let us down. We hope in politics, like our president, our party, which is to say, we hope in power. Or we hope in money, so we overwork, or we put our hope in the experience of romance or the expression of our bodies sexually, however we want. Listen, whatever you put your hope in, let me tell you, that's what you believe you were made for. Whatever you put your hope in is whatever you believe you were made for. And if there's no God and you weren't made for him, well, you got to pick something else. The problem is every other hope decays and rots right in front of your eyes and leaves you the worse for wear. Think about it. In our culture today, we have never been more sexually expressive more politically polarized, more abusing of drugs. There's never been more corporate greed and inequality of wealth. We have put all our hopes in the stuff of this life. How's that working for us? Not very well, I think. And we do these things not because we have faced death, but because we won't. We haven't. To respond to Jessica Brown, then hopelessness happens, happens because we won't face death not because we have. Fourth reason we struggle to have a conversation about death is what I'll, I'll, I'll term modern holiness. You can see I put that in quotation marks there on purpose. Uh, maybe some of you may remember, uh, do you remember the church lady from Saturday Night Live? Thank you, one person remembers it. My wife does, thank you. From Saturday Night Live, like Dana Carvey's character, maybe remember that? Uh, she had the wig, right, the organ, uh, the stained glass windows behind her, always blaming everything on the devil. Like, could it be... Satan, she said. Yeah, like, acted like she was better than everyone. And, you know, that character was sort of poking fun at mocking holy people, self-righteous people, holiness in general. But even though we do that, I think, though, our culture is still as interested in morality and in holiness as ever. We just don't call it that anymore. Let me tell you what I mean. Think about how much we, we, we call out and we shame those we disagree with. People are held up, stripped of dignity, of community, maybe their jobs. Today, talk shows, where this all happens in large part, they become like churches. The audience comes in, people come in, the priests up front hold people up, shame some while letting others go because they're the good people now. Again, it's a religious framework. We should just be honest about it. Here's why we do this. It's because we still have moral reflexes even though we try to get rid of morality. We feel guilt for the things we have done. We just don't know what to do with it or why we do it. So we blame them or them or them. And all this. I'm not talking about real justice for real wrongdoing. No, I'm talking about all the shaming or the blaming and the hating we do because there's, there's no God after death, we've said. And we've lost words like forgiveness, repentance, grace. We have to make one another pay now or we don't get paid at all. If we don't make one another pay now, we'll never feel okay about ourselves. We just transfer our wrongdoing onto an alternate 
cultural substitute. Our moral reflexes confuse us. Like, we hate morality. We have to have it. But maybe, maybe if we had an eternal judge who could see it all and deal with our guilt, deal with our need for holiness and right standing, we wouldn't try to make each other pay. We could treat one another better, huh? I want to tell you, when God as judge goes away and the meaning of death goes away, we don't judge each other less. We end up judging one another more. We struggle. These four things, I think, sort of conspire to cause us difficulty when it comes to the conversation about death. And those last three, you'll notice, are a direct result of our attempts to banish God. But what if? What if instead we invited him into this conversation? What might happen? Could we do better? I think we could do better. What if there were a better way? There is. There is. Number two, how? Despite all of that difficulty, how can we do better? Now, one of my sons uh, plays basketball, and recently he told me this plan he had hatched with his teammates on how to get really prepared and really ready to go for his games, because one of them had been exposed to the virtues of smelling salts. And his team, this, one of his teammates was convinced that smelling salts were the key to getting everybody fired up to play. <laughs> so here was their big, their big plan. They were all going to get smelling salts, put them in a bag, get them on the bench, break them out, and all just bust out the smelling salts, each of them before the game, before tip-off. This was their big, you know, grand plan. Now, you could imagine that I, I might have dissuaded him from doing this, and if you're a, a parent of one of the other players, you can thank me later, but in a sense, I wouldn't say this, he wasn't wrong. They weren't wrong about it. Why? Because if you've ever smelled smelling salts before, you know they are powerful, they are potent, they smell terrible. But when you, you break that thing open, you become incredibly, immediately focused. Now, all, all laughs aside, I would propose to you that you would allow the death, Pastor Kevon Liber, to be that for you. Smelling salts to call you to wake up and focus on what is coming. We need to do better with this. How can we? Let me try to, try to give you now three Christian responses, specifically Christian responses to death. And here we go. Number one, move through these. First of all, I want to encourage you actually to face death. To face death. And here's what I mean. One of the, the first Christians in history wrote a little book. It was possibly this early sermon that had become transcribed. We don't know for sure. But it was written to largely Jewish people who were coming out of their Jewish faith and were trusting Jesus as their Messiah, their Christ. And that book came to be known as what we call Hebrews. And in it, chapter 2, this unknown author writes. It says, quote, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory us, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer, look at that word, of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. So in order to save us humans, this is saying Jesus became something in specific for us. Now the word gets translated as pioneer in English, but in Greek it's the word archagos. Archagos. It can be translated also sometimes as, as prince, like the first one. But maybe it gets even translated better, some folks, scholars believe, is the word champion. Champion. What was a, what was a champion in those days? Well, a champion, the archagos, that culture was the one who 
suited up, sort of put on the, the Iron Man suit, the armor for his people, and went into battle representing a, a group. For example, if you know the story, when David fought Goliath, David was the champion of the Israelites. Goliath was the champion of the Philistines and the people who won only won because of the actions of a singular individual to, who represented them on the battlefield. If they won, they only did so because someone else won whose victory passed to them. That was a champion. So when it says here that Jesus is a, a pioneer, a champion, what battle was he fighting? Whose battle was he fighting? The author of Hebrews goes on. It says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So what battle was Jesus facing? He's saying, the battle with death. Whose battle was he facing? Come on, it's ours. Oh, but unlike David, Jesus didn't just risk his life. He gave his life in battle, fighting our enemies, fear, sin, death. He became our substitute and got the loss, the penalty we deserve, the justice due us for all the ways we have hated one another, the ways we make the world worse and turn away from a God who loves us. Jesus died fighting death. Oh, but because he was sinless, perfect. Martin Luther called him the man of God's own choosing. He was raised back to life. Death couldn't hold him. Death didn't have a claim on him. And those, as it's saying, who put their trust in him now can make the same claim. Death does not have a claim on me. Death can't keep me. See, Jesus, our champion, killed death. Therefore, therefore, you as a Christian, if you're a Christian, you can and should now face death. Uh-oh, but we do it uniquely. We don't face it alone. We have someone who stands face to face with it, with us, whose hand we hold, whose record we grasp as we face it. You remember the hymn? Come on, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling, right? But oh, see, every, every faith says it is an afterlife, and if you do these things, you can deserve it and earn it. Oh, but only the Christian faith says you could never earn it. You could never deserve it. What you actually deserve is death and separation from a holy and loving God who loves you. But someone has come to rescue you from what is coming. A pioneer, a champion. We can face death with Jesus. Number two, we don't just face death. We can also, I love this, we can feel death, feel death. So what about when it comes to others, huh? What about when it comes to processing, not just our own passing, but the passing of someone that we love, uh, a beloved man, come on, beloved leader, beloved pastor here, huh? What about that? Well, Paul the Apostle, he's an early Christian missionary, uh, early church starter. When his friends in his day were beginning to die and his other friends were asking him, okay, okay, well, when's Jesus gonna return? Because we believe that's gonna happen. If Jesus has defeated death, that's amazing. And if those who, who died trusting Jesus are with him now, that's great too. Okay, but what about us? What about the pain? What about the loss we feel when one of our loved ones dies? Paul, in response, wrote this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He said, oh, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve 
like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So Paul is saying this, that the Christian feels death, feels the sorrow, oh, but in a unique way. And here's how. Notice he's not saying on one hand, hey, go ahead and just grieve and grieve and grieve until you despair and become bitter. But on the other hand, he's not saying, hey, just keep a stiff upper lip. You know, it doesn't really matter after all. There's no crying over spilled milk, like just feel awesome, super happy. You, you shouldn't grieve. No, no, no. He's saying, first of all, we do grieve as Christians, and here's why. Here's why. It's because when you grieve loss, you come face to face with an inescapable reality that things are not as they should be. And man, I've had that thought a thousand times this week. You feel like this is not how this is supposed to go. This is not how this is supposed to be. And by the way, do you know that's exactly what the Christian scriptures say that reality is. Reality is that we were not made to die. Not how it's supposed to go. We were made to live forever. Love forever. Learn forever. To grow and care and be cared for. And so to grieve is to face the reality that is but that never should have been. Because of sin, when people rebelled and continue to rebel against God, sin has come into the world. It is what breaks things down. See, we grieve the reality that no matter how perfectly cultivated the garden we create is, sin somehow finds its way in. It's not how it's supposed to be, and we grieve that. Oh, but when we grieve, Paul says we don't mourn as those with no hope how do we do this? How do we do this? Oh, listen. When we see, for example, case study here. When we see Jesus at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, you probably know the story, John chapter 11. If you know the story, you know how it ends. It's got a happy ending. Jesus raises his beloved friend from the dead. That is what is going to happen. Oh, but Jesus, on his way to the tomb, still grieves. He still weeps. He still cries. He like wails, howls at the entrance to the tomb. And if he were here today in the way he was then, I think he might be doing that same thing now. Wailing, grieving, mourning. Here's the word, feeling, feeling. Listen, if you say, hey, kids, death is only normal, Self, death is only natural. I'm gonna tell you something. You will kill the best part of you. You'll kill the best part of you. Death is not normal. It's become part of existence, sure, but it was not supposed to be that way. And Jesus was feeling that in that moment, like we feel it in ours right now. And yet, and he raises Lazarus from the dead and gives him back to his family. He knew there would be a resurrection. He grieved, but he had hope, so he didn't give in to bitterness. And because of the resurrection, you and I can too. Oh, we can feel death, grieve loss, and not have it over, not have it overwhelm us. This last week on uh, Tuesday night, we had a little informal dinner for some of our staff and our deacons, and there were a lot of tears there, and there was a lot of pain there. There's also some smiles, some laughs there as well. And I had a friend of mine who was there in that mix from another culture, came out of another faith background. He turned to me, kind of grabbed me, and he gestured at the room. And he said, listen, in my culture, there would not be any of this. All we know how to do is weep and mourn and wail and lament. But here, 
sorrow and joy. It's because of Jesus. Jesus. So appreciated that. It tells us when we grieve more, we don't do it. Those with no hope. Third, we don't just face death or feel death. We can fact check death. Fact check death. Here's what I mean. Uh, I've got three and a half teenagers living in my home. And, and when we play games and there's someone with a winning hand or they pull out the winning card or they make the winning move or maybe they're in like an argument with each other and they make the winning comeback or something like that. Here's the word we hear. Facts. <laughs> Facts, as in I just won, facts. You didn't see that coming, but you can't beat this, facts. What's Paul doing? In another letter, he writes to the church in Corinth talking about death. He, he's actually in this book, 1 Corinthians, he's having a chapter 15, a conversation, rhetorical conversation with death. And he says this, where, oh death, is your victory? Where, oh death, is your sting? Listen, Paul, what's he doing? He's literally taunting death here. Like, what's that, Mr. Death? That person passed, that Christian passed, our beloved father or son or pastor or friend died. You think that's the end of him and therefore the end of us? Hey, gee whiz, that sounds familiar. There was this person, old what's his name? Oh, Jesus. Same thing happened to him. He died, but he killed you. Oh, facts. He rose from the dead. Facts. You don't get the last word. Facts. You may go first. Oh, but you'll never go last. Jesus made the winning move. Facts. And the same is true, Paul is saying, for everyone, everyone who has faith in Jesus. You can fact check it. Taunt death a little. Dwight Moody, D.L. Moody, famous pastor in Chicago. He said this, put it like this. When he was dying, he said, quote, pretty soon you're going to read in the papers. Dwight Moody is dead. Don't you believe it? I will be more alive than I am right now. See, a Christian, a Christian, face death, feel death, fact check death. Like I said at the beginning, you won't find this response anywhere else. This is unique. This is, I believe, at least beautiful. It's empowering, transformative, and here's the word, hopeful. It's hopeful. Therefore, number three, who can have it? Who can have this hope? Because I want to tell you, it is hope. It is a personal hope. It is a personal hope that Jesus will. I know Kevon believe this. Jesus will, like the little girl Jesus raised in Mark chapter 5, he will take you personally by the hand, carry you to him up through death. It is, second, it's a material hope that you will in a life to come, you'll have a, a real body, a new body. You won't be like a, a just an invisible floating baby on a cloud with a harp or something. That is the farthest thing from the Christian vision of the future and hope. No, you'll have a new body made right again. It will be embracing glory to God. They'll be eating and food and feasting and reunion. And third, it's a divine hope because guess what? In the life to come, you will meet and be held by the most perfect and glorious and loving being, God. God, this is hope. Who can have it? A moment ago, a moment ago, we read, and Paul insisted we, we kind of take hope uh, like salt and we kind of rub it in to our grief and transform it. He, he went on to say this, verse 14, look at this. He said, <clears throat> we believe, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. See, Paul says this hope is for who? Those who are, he puts it, in Christ. 
in Christ. Let me ask you, are you in Christ today? Are you in Christ today? To be in Christ is to be a person, like Paul says, who believes, that's the word, that Jesus died and rose for them. Why did Jesus die? Here's the bad news. Because you were so bad, he had to die for you. But why did he rise? Oh, because he was glad to do it. Glad to save you and give you a new hope, a new future. See, a person in Christ is the one who has acknowledged, Jesus, I trust you to save me. I don't trust another name. I trust yours. Place me in you. Take my hand, Jesus. I believe you are not a human who became God, but you're God who became a human to deal with my fears, to free me from the power and the fear of death, you came to offer me forgiveness in spite of all my selfishness. You came and you did this, dying alone and forsaken. You took the sting of death. So I wouldn't have to. I want to tell you, no one is born a Christian. No one's born, you may grow up in church, grow up in a pew, or grow up in a Christian home. No one's born a Christian. Just because you grow up in a McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger, okay? Just because you grow up in a garage doesn't make you a car, okay? No one's born a Christian. You must be born again, Jesus said, to receive a new life, a new hope, therefore a new future. And I want to tell you, Kevon Leibert got this. He would be the first to tell you he's not your savior. He'd be the first to tell you he needed a savior and so do you and so do I. And today, because of that, I am fully confident that Kivon has been fully saved in every sense of the word. He's fallen asleep, that is, in Christ. And for those of you who are in Christ, you will see him, meet him again. You can come to live with a deep assurance, as I have, a lot of people have from countless others, from every language, tribe, tongue, men, women, that you can have a hope and a future and the Prince of Heaven can be your Prince of Peace. Who can have it? You can. You can if you reach out and take the hand of Christ today. Let me take a moment and pray for you as we begin to close. Lord, I, I thank you for this, the hope that you hold out to us because we need it. All this world offers us is a series of decaying hopes. You came to give us something better, a living hope based on an indestructible life, Jesus Christ. God, I'm so thankful for that. Thankful Kevon had that. Thank you, we have that. I'm praying for anyone today who doesn't have that actually first. If today you say, like, I, I know I'm not in Christ. It's not. I'm not serving God. I don't know Jesus. I may have grown up in a home where it was. But I'm not. That's you. Today can be your day. And if that's you, say, today I want to be in Christ. I want to serve, follow Jesus. I believe he died and rose for me. Again, would you just pray this prayer with me? You just say, Lord Jesus, I come here today. Didn't even know maybe why but I want to be in you. You came to rescue me. Thank you. you. Came to save me. Thank you. Came to free me. Thank you. Came to bring me to your side. Thank you. I receive you now, Jesus. As my pioneer, as my champion. 
turn my back on my old life and put my hope in your new life. Would you forgive me, receive me, and save me? In Jesus' name, I pray these things. And second, I want to pray for us all that we would, we would have the grace this week and take that hope and rub it like salt into what we're all going through. Lord, would you now give your bride, your people, your children, sons and daughters, grace and strength. We need you every hour we need you. Bless us now, our Savior, and we come to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, would you, um, would you stand with me as we begin to close? As, as we do that, I want to invite a couple of folks up here. First of all, I want to invite um, our elder team, John Lloyd, Gail in Washington. They're going to take a moment and also pray over us in just a moment. But if also, uh, well, I actually want to invite our prayer team for We have this amazing group of people here who would love to pray with you. If today you made that decision to be in Christ, we'd love to pray with you. For, if you need prayer for any other reason at all, grief or loss or some other thing that's why they're here as well i want to thank you all thank our team for being here as well and john galen turn it over to you family can we uh, just pray uh, bow your heads with me please lord god we take this um, smelling sauce moment as morgan preached just now and we reflect on the life that you've given us lord kivan was a man that lived life to the fullest every second at 39 years. It's not about the number of years that we live, it's how we live within the years that we've been given. And so Father, I pray that we would all take a moment to reflect on the invitation that you've made to us as sons and daughters to live a life worth living. Give us the courage to lay down our pride, our arrogance, and all the other stuff that prevents us from saying yes to you and saying, yes, I want to live a life worth living in Jesus' name. Yeah. I'm so glad that the squirming children are here, the gangly teenagers, the middle schoolers, and everybody in between. Because it reminds us that what we need right now is the comfort of the family of God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And in medicine, we have vital signs, you know, your blood pressure, heart rate, respiratory rate, oxygen levels, and we call them vital because they're so foundational. In the faith, we have a, a set of vital signs that help us with that intimacy with the family of God, but we call them giving and serving and praying, fasting, being in the Word. And like those vital signs in our body, those spiritual vital signs, they're connected. You know, if I stop breathing, my heart rate's gonna go down. It'll eventually stop. And so as I close with this prayer, we're pressing into these vital signs of the faith that we can, like a child, curl up in the lap of our father and mother and receive that love and comfort. So join me in prayer. God, you've called us to come to you like children. We're to come to you like children. And right now we recognize this is a moment of the babbling of a toddler we don't quite understand. It's the mist across a field that prevents us from seeing exactly where we need to go. It's a mirror that we look into seeking clarity and reflection of detail. And 
have to confess, I don't, I don't see and feel that detail right now, God, but your word says that we get to step into that in-between moment, that moment of grief, that moment of unknown, not as someone who does not have hope, but we get to do it with a hope, a hope that's founded, founded on the fact that you conquered the most unknowable thing in human existence, death. Yeah. So we look forward to a, a season where the, the words will have meaning and we'll understand. We'll look forward to a season where your word promises that that, that mist will part and we will see then clearly. Yeah. The mirror that was once dim will be clear, but oh, most importantly, we will be fully known. We will be fully known as you've known us, God. And so right now, I just pray that we would, we would have the childlike crazy, crazy confidence in the character of God, in the goodness of God, in the power of God. We lift all this up in the name of the one and the one and only who conquered death, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Church, let me leave you with a blessing. I'm going to change the words of our benediction just a bit for today. I hope you'll receive this. And now may the Lord bless us and keep us. Make his face to shine on us. May he lift up his countenance. God, may you lift up your countenance upon us. And may you give us peace. Thank you for being here so much with us, everybody online, everybody in the room. You are loved. Look forward to seeing you again soon, shortly. You're dismissed. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.